Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new year and a new episode of Cloud Control. I am your host, Sean Harris, and this is Cloud Control, like I said, the podcast all about the people behind the cloud that make the cloud run, concepts on cloud computing, and just the trends in the industry presented to you by presented by Spot by NetApp. Today, we are joined by AWS serverless hero and super consultant, Yen Yen Trey. Yen, thanks for joining us on Cloud Control. How are you doing today? Hey, Sean. Hey, uh, thanks for having me here. I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. How's your first week of the new year been? Yeah, so far so good. Uh, relaxing and uh, just about to kick off a new workshop with a bunch of people, um, you know, teaching them how to do serverless. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so when you let's let's jump right in and talk about um, serverless and how you've kind of pivoted your career into being a ser- an expert on all things serverless. What was that transition like for you? What kind of led to it? Yeah, so I guess uh, I started uh, building stuff on AWS uh, back in two thousand and nine uh, slash two thousand and ten. Um, so you know I was. Uh, I graduated back in the 2006, so working for Credit Suisse, um, back when their reputation was still intact. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was uh, building stuff that are used by, I don't know, 20 different traders uh, inside the bank. Uh, but I was reading about all these things that other people are doing on the outside. So I know I was missing quite a bit of the action. Um, and so I found a you know, chance to get out of uh, banking and into uh, I guess the crazy world of uh, building online games, uh, social games uh, at the time was all Facebook. So I joined this company making Facebook games, and that's when I got involved with uh, you know the whole AWS side of things. Uh, you know, went from uh, waiting a couple of months for a new server to be added to our data center to now being able to rent a server from AWS uh, with a five minutes, uh, just you know click a button, and there you go, you got a new server in a couple of minutes. So that was a pretty big game changer for me. Uh, but over the years, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, from where I was, that was a big jump, a uh, big improvement. But then over the years, you still find that you're spending, I don't know, maybe about 70% of your time just managing infrastructure, setting up uh, capacity, you know, doing capacity planning, setting up, uh, you know, auto-scaling groups and uh, configuring the, you know, scaling thresholds and uh, jumping onto servers to look at the logs. And there's still just a lot of uh, stuff you've got to do before you can, actually write the couple of lines of code that your customer actually wants. You have a, a new button that does some funky thing on when you click on a character or something like that. Um, so you're still spending a lot of time just managing infrastructure. And uh, I was always hoping that, okay, you know, I wish there's something that can just deal with all of that. And that let me just focus on the things that is actually different from project to project rather than just keep, you know, doing the same thing over and over every time you build a new game or a new product. Uh, and so when the when the AWS released a Lambda back in the 2014, uh, it was you know, at the time it was just really very specific. You got like an S3 trigger, so you know we were always kind of scratching our heads and think, okay, what can we really do with this thing? Uh, but then the 2015, that's when they released the um, support for API Gateway, so you can actually build a REST API and have API Gateway in front of Lambda function, so you can actually build real systems, uh, you know, the proper REST APIs for your you know, projects and products. And so that's when I, uh, I guess uh, I, around that time, I uh, moved to a different job and uh, working for a social network. And uh, you know, what we were doing was fairly simple, but um, you know, 
something that's uh, quite spiky in terms of traffic and the uh, Lambda was just really good fit because, uh, you know, at the time we looked at what we had, we had a lot of EC2 servers running at about 5% CPU because uh, whenever something like an influencer does a post, there's like a big spike in traffic, uh, but you don't know when they're going to do that. So you always have to be ready. So, you know, they were spending a lot of money on this, just infrastructure sitting there waiting for something to happen, but 99% of the time, nothing happens. So you are you know, just running at a like really low CPU percentage. And so we looked at that and thought, well, you know, Lambda is pretty good fit for this kind of use case. It's quite scalable. Uh, and, uh, you know, and uh, when there's nothing happening, you don't pay for anything. And so we, um, and also there's loads of other scalability and problems uh, with the system that we inherited in that company when I joined them. And so that's when I kind of did my first big serverless project uh, where we kind of migrated this uh, social network from running on EC2 to running like, more of a microservices architecture with a lot of event-driven components to it, uh, running on Lambda, API Gateway, um, a lot of Kinesis streams at the time because the uh, event bridge wasn't quite a thing just yet. Um, and um, and yeah, that was, so that was a quite interesting project uh, and uh, we probably you know, saved about 95% of the EC2 cost uh, when we moved to Lambda um, and the system became more scalable, more robust in general. And that's kind of how I got into the cloud and transition from running EC2 to then later containers and then later to uh, serverless. Um, just as I, I guess that my use case uh, became uh, uh, more, more suitable, I guess, uh, and also Lambda became more uh, capable as a platform as well. And since then I've been pretty much focused on serverless because uh, to me, it just makes a lot more sense now you know, when you don't have to worry about infrastructure for most of the use cases. Of course, there's still some cases where okay, you need that control or you need that cost efficiency to run a system that has got a really high throughput. It makes more, um, it's more cost efficient to run a bunch of containers than to pay for compute per request. Uh, but for most of the use cases I've seen out there, you know, Lambda is both simpler and also more cost efficient. That's a, that's a great point. And you, because you've spent so much time in AWS since the beginning of really cloud computing, right? 2008, 2009, 2010 was really when cloud took off. Um, what was it like doing that migration, lifting that migration from a workload and planning perspective? I think a lot of people get hung up on, man, if I have to go to microservices or containers and take my traditional server client application and try and move it to this new stack, it's going to be way too much work and I'm just going to be overburdened. So I'm just going to stay on EC2 or my virtual machines. What was that migration, that transition like? Was it easier than you expected? Was it harder than you expected? And then what do you wish that you knew then, that you know now? What do you wish that you knew then that you knew now? How's that for a long question? Yeah, sure. So in terms of uh, was it easy, was it harder? Um, it's, I mean, honestly, it's not too, it's not, it's not that bad. Um, I mean, I've gone through similar migration before from a monolith to more of a microservices architecture. Um, and there are well-established playbooks for doing that. Uh, you know, there's a strangler pattern. A lot of people have talked about that, where you take your big system and then uh, you identify, starting with uh, you know, one part of the system that's more, uh, I guess, less critical, uh, so that uh, if you mess it up, it's not going to just shut down a business. <laughs> and so you start with that and you migrate that out of, into its own service. And then you follow a lot of patterns around the microservices, your own, your own data, so it, no one else should be you know, reaching out into your database and changing data, everything has to go through the service uh, uh, API um, interface. So you apply that and then gradually you 
you know, you, you break it apart, your large your large monolith application and turn into uh, you know, quite a lot of different smaller uh, microservices. Where it becomes difficult is where you identify the boundaries of those services. Uh, and honestly, I still don't get it right the first time. And uh, you often have to you know, just go with um, what you think is right. And also, you know, things change. What's right today may just be wrong tomorrow because something else requires change in the business. So that's always going to be an evolving uh, landscape. Um, so, and so in terms of the actually, you know, the architecturally changing those things, uh, it wasn't so bad. Um, but what's probably you know, more difficult is just you know, in terms of that planning so that, uh, okay, you know, working with the business uh, so that uh, you identify the right timing to do that work. Um, and usually it's a case of, okay, we need to do some work on one part of the system. And at that point we think, okay, can we improve it? Can we uh, re-architect around the same time as we work on this new feature? And if we can, then we try to do that work right there and then as opposed to try to say, you know, we're going to do this big migration for six months and not work on anything else. Uh, no business is going to say yes to that. So it's usually a case of uh, working with the business, understanding the priorities and, uh, and trying to do those, um, those migrations uh, you know, as, you know, as and when it's uh, convenient for both you and the business and also do it in a way that's uh, less risky to the business uh, as well. Um, and uh, I think uh, it's also good, uh, especially for large companies, uh, to give people space to experiment. So don't force them to you know, you know, use what they've just learned on a production project. Uh, so that's where things like, you know, here people talk about 20% time. And I think uh, things like hackathon or just like a, like a game day or something like that, like a, maybe once a month, just give people a chance to try something out that they want to try out. Because if you don't do that, um, you don't leave that space for people to experiment. They're just going to do it on your real production project. And, uh, you know, the first time you try something, you're going to get it wrong. So let them get that wrong, get something wrong, <laughs> you know, on a, on a thing that's just a toy as opposed to your actual production project. Um, and so I've, I've, I've benefited from working for companies where I've had that space to, okay, we want to do this uh, Lambda thing, want to do this new thing, this new project, this library, I uh, want to try out this new algorithm or whatever. Uh, have had a space to just experiment with those uh, in in a setting that is allows me to just you know fail without any consequence. No, that's a great point. And one thing that I've always been big on when running DevOps and platform teams is I call them IL sprints, where we just would we'd complete a sprint as part of what we were working on, and then we would take a week or a two week sprint and just say go hack on something. Right. We need to do we, the outcome needs to be X. We have a develop, we have a system that we can develop on, right? We have our production and stage and, um, dev environments, go hack around and try and solve this problem and show us how you did it and be the expert. And so I think that's one thing that I would tell anybody that is running in the cloud and wanting to make that migration from monolithic to a serverless slash micro container or a micro, um, microservices architecture is to have those sprints in place. What career, what, what tips would you give to somebody who wants to advance into becoming into serverless? Um, what, what topic should they focus on? What should they, what should they really learn on? What would you point somebody to do? Yeah. So, uh, like I said, just the best way to learn is to just experiment. And one of the great thing about the using serverless technology on, and learning it is that the um, because it's paper use, if you're using things like API Gateway, Lambda, EventBridge, SNS, uh, what have you, 
they're all paper use so there's no cost for having these resources just sitting around not doing anything because you're not going to be paying for them so it's actually a very good way for you to just try something out uh, build like a you know build some system uh, like you know um you see a Twitter, you know, okay, I want to build a Twitter clone. I want to build a Reddit clone. I want to build a something other clone. Um, you know, it's just see, think about, okay, how will I design that system? What other services I should be using? Okay, so I can use uh, EventBridge or SNS for this messaging part. Okay, um, how do they work? How do they differ? And just start building different variations of your designs and then just, you know, just try things out and learn how they work. I mean, there's lots of courses out there, but, you know, I've got a few myself, but there's nothing really beats just trying it out and doing it yourself and getting your hands dirty. Um, you, you, you have a much better understanding of the systems you're working with, the services you're going to be working with uh, you know, by just you know, working with them. And, it's, uh, and for, yeah, for, I think for serverless, um, it's, it's really easy to get started. There's, uh, there's some uh, rough edges still. There's still a lot of things you have to learn to kind of master some of the services. Uh, especially in the most of uh, interesting environments with you know, high throughput requirement or really ultra low latency requirements, uh, certain things that uh, are you know, it's gonna require you to uh, you know, do things maybe you know, slightly different from what you would do for 90% of the cases. But uh, by and large, you can learn maybe a handful of services and be able to uh, build pretty much any systems uh, you, know, you want using serverless. You've got API Gateway and Lambda for your basic uh, API uh, management and uh, compute. And then you've got your SNS and EventBridge for messaging. You got SQS for queuing things, uh, and then you got the DynamDB for databases. And you have to learn IAM for just basic uh, um, security. And then there's CloudFormation. Uh, but then there's all these other deployment tools that build on top of CloudFormation or Terraform that makes it that's much more productive to work with. So there's actually not that many things you have to learn, and most of them are quite simple and quite straightforward. And the great thing about learning, say, like an AWS service is that, uh, well, that knowledge is reusable. Um, you can always kind of just, you know, use it to build another system um, that uses the same services. In fact, you see people using the same, so maybe 10 different services uh, for many, many different kinds of applications. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, right? Like there are so many, there's almost service overload when it comes to what you can do and what you can spend money on. And it's kind of, and it can be overwhelming if you don't know exactly what you're looking for. Um, but for most systems, uh, you're probably only going to need a small handful of them. Like AWS got like 200 something services. Most of them, they are like, what well, the more and more kind of, some kind of catering for niche needs. Like they got like a, a ground satellite or whatever service. <laughs> I mean, how many people do you know that actually builds satellites <laughs> applications? So. You know, but for most people that are building your you know, web, mobile, app, mobile app or or whatever, there's only maybe like a handful of services that you really need to learn. That's you know that's a that's a great question. That's a great point, and um, brings up my next question: How do you, as DevOps is kind of the buzzword in cloud right now, but you also see a new one called that people are talking about platform engineering. How do you separate the two? And What's your give us some your thoughts on how you view the two and where they fit and where they diverge? Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, for me, uh, DevOps is a set of uh, principles and the practices that uh, that shorten the time between you committing some code to it running reliably in production. Um, in terms of how you apply that, the different teams and different contexts requires different tooling that comes into play. Uh, one thing that always kind of um, 
guess upsets uh, upsets me a little bit with uh, DevOps is just the, the the conversation is just always focused on the tooling as opposed to the high level principle, um, which I think is far more important uh, when you think about okay what makes you know what's good DevOps versus bad. Um, and the, one of the things that you notice uh, often when, especially for large organizations running on AWS is that there's a lot of cross-cutting concerns. There's a lot of duplications. There's a lot of, uh, I guess, uh, you know, AWS is like, it's your, your, your baseline platform, but then the, you know, for your organization, there's a set of common um, requirements and capabilities like security or, um, or things like that, that, uh, you know, you're going to need, uh, every team's going to need to do the same thing. So rather than every team doing the same thing over and over, it's much more efficient to have one team that specializes in building a thin layer of platform on top of AWS that provides basic capabilities like, okay, every time you open a new account or new regions, you start using a new region, there's going to be some basic set of capabilities in your account, uh, like it's connected to, uh, to some centralized audit account. So CloudTrail collects all the logs in that account so that the uh, you know, if you ever get, you know, auditor coming in to look at your data assets, logs, or whatever, you know, that's one account you can always go to. Uh, or you need to have uh, some kind of a log shipping capability to ship all of your logs to uh, Datadog, to Logs.io, or whatever platform you're using. Um, as well as maybe a bunch of, uh, you know, just the rules uh, in the Apex config or, some, or, 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 or something that, uh, you know, uh, applies uh, some compliance requirements you have on your AWS resource configurations and things like that. Again, you know, it's much easier to have, better to have one team that governs the, uh, those basic, that, that common platform requirements uh, than to have every single team doing the same thing. So for me, that's where the value of platform team comes in to build up a lot of that uh, common uh, cross-cutting concerns that organizations have and also to provide the tooling that makes it easier for development teams to focus on building features and applications and uh, leave some of these um, uh, sort of common uh, uh, sort of cross-cutting concerns to somebody else uh, who can you know, dedicate the, the, the time and, uh, and resources uh, to look after that. I work for a few companies that, has, uh, that have uh, platform teams and it has, uh, you know, has worked out quite well when the platform team works uh, closely with the, the application teams. Uh, where it doesn't work so well is when you have uh, some of the, I guess, uh, enterprises that often just do a rebranding exercise as opposed to a restructuring exercise where they take the existing infrastructure team and call them DevOps team, but without changing how they work and how they interact with other uh, members of the organization. And then when platform team becomes the new flavor of the month, uh, they rebrand that to platform team without changing anything again. Uh, I think that's where things just really sort of breaks down, uh, where you often see, you know, the kind of the, the platform teams I normally work with are like a partnership with your uh, um, feature development team. And oftentimes, uh, you know, you'll be uh, doing pull, uh, PRs or, or feature requests to the platform teams to say, okay, please add this capability um, because we all, you know, because we run into some problems uh, and versus uh, the, the sort of the wrong platform team structure will be if the platform team is the gatekeeper. I've seen cases where, okay, the, the application team would develop something, but they can't deploy to anywhere, to production or anywhere near that or, or, or to even AWS account. You have to go through the platform team to essentially say, yeah, that's okay. Or even some worst cases I've seen, take, say, like a CDK application, rewrite it into Terraform because it's, it's a company policy that everything has to be in Terraform before they can be shipped to AWS. So when you have your platform team as your gatekeeper and you're saying to the, your, your, your employee essentially that we trust these people more than you, 
uh, that is a really dysfunctional configuration in terms of how you know, platform teams work. And uh, I think if you read about the people like uh, Matthew uh, Skelton and uh, the team topologies, and a lot of people that talk about you know, what platform team sh uh, should look like, you know, you often see the sort of the same uh, themes in terms of collaboration, in terms of uh, this uh, uh, this kind of shared uh, I don't know responsibility model or something comes up a lot in terms of teams collaborating uh, as a partners as opposed to you know gatekeepers. Yeah, and that's a great point. And I think I think people forget that you shouldn't get hung up on the terms, right? Because if we get hung up on terms, that's what drives that stagnation, especially when it comes to the idea of the DevOps team is now the platform team for six weeks, and then we're going to change it again because we just want to use the new terminology. Um, do you feel like that's why a lot of companies who decide to move away from DevOps and platform engineering as methodologies and practices fail, or is there something underlying that that they're missing when it comes to that successful um, implementation of DevOps and platform engineering as two distinct things that um, cause that rever reversion or, or that, uh, that, that rollback to, if you will, to the previous way of doing things because it was easier. Uh, I've not seen any people roll back the the, uh, the platform team. Uh, I have seen a lot of people do platform team badly, as I mentioned, uh, where they don't really understand what is uh, you know what what is platform engineering, and uh, oftentimes these are you know companies that are not uh, you know, technology companies. Uh, these are companies that are um, whose leadership do not understand uh, the process of building software, and so and they are the ones that are making top down decisions, and uh, that's where I think people are oftentimes you see. Uh, uh, platform engineering teams are being uh, misimplemented, well, badly implemented, uh, and uh, so you know they're only platform team in name, but not in what they do. Um, but but even yeah, but even then, I've not seen any any sort of rollbacks of uh, platform teams. Uh, at least not not myself, at least. I think the rollback perspective is more, and what I'm looking at is like we have an infrastructure team that has become the platform team that handles all that interaction and manages our cloud estate. But now we want to throw DevOps into the mix <clears throat> and start using DevOps methodology. I think where I see, I have seen more of the rollback of that is on the DevOps side where they're like, we're going to be a DevOps organization now. And then six weeks later, they're like, nope, didn't work. So we're going to roll it back. That's kind of what I was wanting to get your thoughts on from that perspective was what causes that rollback of the DevOps mentality um, and taking it away from the platform engineering when it actually could be very helpful. Yeah, I think uh, it's again, it's, it's 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 companies that don't really understand what DevOps is. In the same way that I've seen a lot of people say they adopt Agile and then move away from Agile, where they're not Agile. None of them is. None of what they do is Agile. It's still very much a process driven. There's no, there's no. The Agile manifesto is pretty simple. It's four different things. You know, collaboration over over process and uh, things like that, uh, which. Um, it's not what people actually end up doing. All you end up doing is uh, a two-week waterfall, uh, which is what most people end up doing in the, when when they say they're doing they're doing agile. Um, and so, you know, when a lot of those companies that say, "Okay, we are going to go that and we're going to do DevOps," uh, they're not really doing DevOps. DevOps, like I said, is just you know, it's just what how do you shorten the time between uh, committing your code to it running reliably in production? I mean, who wouldn't want that? <laughs> 
Um, there's, you know, if you actually know, you know what DevOps is, obviously that's that's just what good uh, software development practices uh, uh, should look like. Uh, you know, the, the, you know, at the end of it, if you have a good uh, software development pra uh, process in place, you should have a short time, a short lead time between you committing some code to it being running in production uh, reliably and safely. Um, and the think of when people think about, oh, we're doing DevOps again, it's going, it's going to, you know, they're thinking about, okay, what tools we're going to be using. They're not thinking about, okay, how can we change the way we build the software how do, and how the way we work as an organization between different teams so that when, say, you commit your code, um, within a few minutes, you'll be running in production in a way that's uh, safe and reliable so that you have all your tests, uh, you know, passes, and uh, we have some confidence that uh, you know, once it's in production, is well, before it even goes into production, uh, it's in a good state. And and so I think, uh, you know, they're not really so much rolling back DevOps, but they're just, um, they never understood what DevOps uh, means in the first place. And, uh, and it's probably some of this uh, is kind of it's just, you know, agencies uh, they're coming in and just selling something and masquerade that as a DevOps and then, you know, and that doesn't work. And so they roll back whatever that is. Not, no, they're not rolling back DevOps per se. <laughs> no, I think that's where a lot of companies get hang, hung up. And that's a point. And you're right about the management consultants coming in and saying, hey, this is the new buzzword that you need to implement in your organization to be the where you need to be. <laughs> We're about a month past AWS reInvent or as I like to call it, the craziest week in cloud computing. Um, it's exhausting if you've never been. Um, were you at reInvent this year? Uh, not this year, uh, but the, I've been there several times in the past, and that's one of the perks you get as a, uh, it was a hero, is that they, they actually send you to reInvent. Uh, but oh, that's I've got awesome. some other medical things uh, this year, so I couldn't go. What were some of the announcements that came out of reInvent that got you really amped about the future of serverless computing, especially on the AWS platform? Uh, funny enough, uh, I think most of the big announcements that actually came up uh, uh, came out uh, before, just before reInvent. I think the 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 pre-event was uh, much more exciting uh, this year compared to the actual reInvent itself. Because I think the actual reInvent itself was so AI focused. Uh, pretty much everything you you hear just okay, uh, bedrock this, uh, uh, vector database that. Um, but most of the big uh, sort of serverless related announcements actually came just before and uh, you know, some of them came afterwards as well. Um, the thing, the big one was that they changed the way the Lambda's uh, scaling behavior works. Um, this was changed right before, I think like uh, just before uh, day one of a uh, reInvent where um, previously Lambda had this uh, burst capacity limit where you know, on the account level or rather region level, you have this uh, 3000 uh, concurrency limit uh, so that you can go from zero to 3000 concurrency executions uh, instantly. And after that, you can only go up by another 500 uh, concurrency units uh, per minute. And that applies to all of your functions. And so that makes the Lambda basically not suitable for some really uh, bursty um, workloads. So one of the previous companies I used to work for is called the, the Zone, D-A-Z-N. They do sports streaming. And so as with live sports and live events in general, you have, uh, well, everything wanna, everything's live. So... You know, um, at the zone when I was there a couple of years ago, we had about two million concurrent user, uh, users at peak. And the funny thing is that uh, everybody logs in like thirty seconds or two minutes before because, well, match is gonna start at two o'clock. Uh, Why am I doing you know, logging in at one thirty? There's nothing to watch, and so everybody logs in just before the match starts. So you get these really crazy spikes in traffic um, that goes uh, you know from zero to tens of thousands of requests per second. 
Uh, and so for spikes like that, where it's, 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 it's more than what the Lambda's burst capacity limit is, uh, can handle, uh, it means that uh, basically for anything along that critical path for someone logging in and start watching a match, um, we couldn't use Lambda unless the API itself is uh, highly cacheable. So we can use CDN to basically address the scalability challenge. Um, so, and that's because of the burst capacity limit. And I know of a few other companies, uh, uh, Patrick DeBois, uh, who's you know, the, the, the godfather that, you know, of DevOps, he coined the term DevOps. He was working for a company that, again, does a, a live event, uh, um, I guess, voting, I think. Uh, so he had the same problems a couple of years ago in terms of Lambda not being able to scale uh, fast enough and far enough uh, for some of the more spiky workloads that he was working with. Uh, so this change just before reInvent uh, basically kind of solves that. Now every single function can scale from zero to a thousand and then from thousand to two thousand. So you can, you can, you can have uh, another ten, another thousand of uh, concurrency units every, every 10 seconds, every single function. So if you're able to uh, say, you know, ex explain to AWS your use case and why you need say 100,000 concurrency units uh, because you've got this crazy spike in traffic, um, then you have this ability to scale by a thousand concurrent executions per function per 10 seconds, which means that you're able to scale your Lambda concurrency much faster so that even when you've got really crazy spikes like the ones that you know, I saw at the zone, uh, Lambda will still be a, you know, a, a feasible platform for run our compute for those, some of those APIs. So that's probably be the, I think for me, at least the, the biggest change um, for the sort of serverless offerings uh, from this reInvent. Yeah, that's that was a huge change, and I know a lot of people were looking forward to being able to do to scale their lambdas out even more because people have gotten so dependent on lambda functions that you, you kind of forget that they don't that you had that limit until you hit, really hit it, and then it became a real problem. You brought up a good point about how AI focused and ML focused reinvent was this year. What are some what are what are what's your vision of where AI and ML are going when it comes to serverless? Um, and what are some of the benefits and some of the pitfalls? Yeah, I think uh, I think there's actually a good synergy between the AI and the serverless uh, because uh, you know with uh, things like Open AI's APIs, uh, uh, you just you know, we pay for them per request, and the same thing you know you do with Lambda and with the Lambda uh, function UAL, you can also now have uh, response streaming as well, which actually works quite well with uh, things like Open AI and other uh, ML model. Uh, well. Uh, large LLM models where the APIs or they don't just return the whole thing, they start streaming response back to you. So as you know, in terms of uh, you building user experience on top of uh, say open AI or, or, uh, or using bedrock or whatever, you know, being able to stream that response back to the caller becomes something that's quite useful. And that's something that, uh, you know, Lambda, uh, Lambda uh, can, can do with uh, function URL thanks to the response streaming stuff that they did. The, um, I think it was last year they released that. Uh, but I think just in general, we see a lot of uh, the people that are in the serverless space and now also been building a lot of uh, um, uh, things with uh, with uh, uh, large language models, uh, partly because, uh, you know, with Lambda, it's really easy to glue a few things together, uh, even with something like Batrock and uh, you've got, uh, you know, you can, you can have a Lambda function that uh, handles small bits of, uh, of logic in your business uh, uh, application and calling OpenAI and then funnel the response to something else uh, or maybe working with uh, Batrock instead. So there's lots of, uh, I guess, the glue components you need to, well, glue logic into write. And that's where I think Lambda actually fits in quite well uh, in that overall architecture where you've got, uh, I don't know, bad raw, you've got some other things you want to 
you want to call or, or maybe using uh, Memento uh, to do some of the caching and things like that. So you don't need a, a, a complete compute platform. Uh, instead, you just need something that can help you connect all of these uh, different pieces uh, together. And I think that's, that's where you know, Lambda can be quite a useful glue between the uh, different services you want to use. Yeah, for sure. The serverless landscape is ever-changing as more services come out, as more people um, start to experiment with it. How do you keep up on your serverless skills and your knowledge about everything serverless up to date? And what communities do you participate in? And how important is community? That's the other part. How important is community when it comes to something like serverless? Yeah, I think when it comes to serverless or just AWS or anything in general, I think community is always uh, is always a, a you know a big part because that's where you know that's that's where you learn from and that's 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 you know other people that's gonna you know you're gonna teach as well. Uh, and uh, you know, I've been involved with uh, functional programming language uh, back in the day, and I've been I was involved with some of the earlier NoSQL stuff as well. Um, I, I don't know. I guess I'm one of those early adopters that like to jump onto some of the uh, new things. So, um, and when it comes to serverless, uh, in terms of you know, the community itself, uh, I've learned a lot from the, certainly from the early adopter communities uh, for, for Lambda, because, uh, you know, for that first couple of years, uh, there was just no, you know, there's no, there's not a lot of guidance from AWS in terms of how you do things. Uh, so, you know, a lot of us collectively were figuring things out and uh, we were sharing with, uh, with everybody else. We were writing blog posts and reading each other's blog posts. And so... You know, you're taking different ideas and different approach from different people. And then, uh, I mean, certainly for me, I've uh, you know, taken on board a lot of different opinions and approaches. And I'll try to form my own by, you know, after I consider other people's approach and also trying them out. And also, you know, you know using some things that, that works for me in my projects and trying to understand, uh, you know, when should you use uh, which approach. And, and, um, and so that's how you kind of, you know, you, you get, you know, you get, you, get, you started building a more complete uh, mental model. Uh, and certainly for me, you know, writing and sharing is also a big part of my learning process as well. So that uh, if I can, you know, if I can, if I can explain something um, to somebody else in a way that uh, is simple and that they can understand, uh, then the, I, you know, typically I will have a better understanding. That means I've got a better understanding of that topic myself as well. In terms of keeping up of, uh, you know, what's going on, um, I just read a lot of blog posts. I spend you know, quite a bit of time just surfing on Twitter and LinkedIn, looking for content that people are other than other people are sharing. Uh, there's a couple of uh, newsletters I subscribe to as well. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think for me, the lot of the information I, you know, I, I read are still, well, that I pick up are still coming from long form blog posts uh, that I find other people are sharing on the Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, and so some of this AI generated, uh, I guess, stuff uh, are getting me a bit, a bit worried because uh, I'm worried that more and more people is going to be just pumping out SEO content as opposed to actual real, you know, learnings from the uh, from the uh, from, well, from experience. So that's why I tend to just you know read stuff that I know from people that I know that know know well, knows their stuff and uh, and you know the, the right the good content. No, and that's a that's a really good point that I don't think we talk about enough when it comes to um generative ai and how it's going to we talk about how it's going to impact the the workforce and replace engineers and it's going to change how we work but i think the thing the the pump and dump that we see a lot of when it comes to content about hot button topics like serverless like kubernetes right like it's easy to go have ai write something and um i think that's something we need to work on you are a member of the aws heroes community 
Um, I'm a member of the community builders program with AWS and the cloud ops space. What has specifically the AWS community been like and watching that growth as you've gone, because I'm assuming you started in community builders and worked your way up to the heroes program. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, but I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that and the importance of the AWS uh, user community um, and community builders program as it comes to the adoption and the knowledge behind something as complex as AWS can be. Yeah, sure. So I actually, uh, um, uh, so they actually did, they had the AWS Heroes program before they had the community builders program. Um, so I was added to the uh, Heroes program in the 2018. Uh, back then, there was no community builders program, and I don't know if there's like a path from the community builders program to the heroes program. I think they are two separate, uh, um, maybe two separate programs that the people manage. Uh, but I think you got some lot of some of the similar people that manage those programs. But in terms of the process, um, um, the I think the the heroes program is uh, there's like an internal community that uh, submits. Um, suggestions and or candidates and then uh, they've they, they got uh, some internal people that uh, uh decides uh, who uh, who gets nominated uh, every quarter or so uh whereas the community builders program is uh i think i think you have to you have to nominate yourself right uh okay yeah so i think uh, the, the goal of uh, both programs uh, is you know is, is quite similar um but i think uh uh the the, the well i don't know what the uh what what the perks are in the for the for the for the community builders program for the heroes program? One of the nice perks is that you get this um, you get this some of these meetings. Uh, they they let you know uh, what's coming up in terms of different services, and you get to have a lot of the catch up sessions with the service teams, um, so that they, they they tell you what's coming up, and often sometimes they ask for your feedback. Uh, but I still find that uh, a lot of times. Uh, uh, by the time they ask for feedback from the heroes, uh, from the heroes, it's already too late. It's already okay. And it's, it's it's already baked. It's uh, it's about to be packaged and sent out the door. So we're just giving some, you know, like a heads up as opposed to a real feedback. Uh, and there's been quite a few things that um, whereby you know, it's, you know, you're sitting in this meeting and then uh, and they they show you something and you're like. <laughs> but then the, I don't know you give them feedback and they they do take it on board, but then. They couldn't do anything because it's okay. It's, it's launching next week, <laughs> so, uh, so 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 I don't I don't think they engage uh, you know some of the heroes um, early enough in terms of that uh, that process. Um, sometimes maybe they do, and I've had a few cases where they reach out to me um, way ahead of time in terms of when they were still running the IFCs and when they're still thinking about new features, how to approach that to get you feedback on that, uh, and then there's like a year later uh, you have another catch up session to see okay what they actually done. Um, but for me, that's been a, kind of probably the, the biggest thing in terms of uh, you know the part of the, the program, just being able to having uh, some insight into what's actually been you know, what's going on and giving getting getting some heads up in terms of uh, uh, what's coming up. And sometimes uh, I get involved with the uh, the feature launch process so that uh, I get to you know try out the in the closed beta and uh, write some of the launch blog post that goes along with the AWS official launch blog post. So those have been pretty good to just, just in terms of, uh, okay, oh, this new thing coming up, okay, I got to try it out first. Um, I, I don't know if they do the same thing with the, with the Builders uh, program. I assume they have something similar. Mm -hmm. Is that the case? Yeah, they have some similar to what they have with the Heroes program. Like they'll go in and give us pre-briefs on new services. Um, they'll ask our feedback for certain services. Um, not to the level of visibility of participating in launch, or at least I haven't been asked to do it. But um, 
it's a very active community. And I think it's the other thing that being a member of that community, the AWS community builders program specifically is how it's increased my, not my sphere of influence, but my universe of people that I interact with when it comes to all things AWS service related. Um, the heroes program is something that they talk about and highlight, but I think from the being the expert, right? Like you are the, the heroes are the trusted experts on some of these services outside of AWS, right? You're not an AWS employee. You're not. And so I think that that aspect is really cool. Whereas the communities program builders program is really focused on inside AWS and building AWS adoption and growth that way, where you come in as that thought leader to say, Hey, this is how I use Lambda. This is how I use, you know, these different services together. And so I was just kind of curious how being a member of the pro the AWS heroes program has increased that universe for your serverless experience. Sure. It's definitely been, uh, I mean, as a consultant, it's definitely great for me because uh, it does give you that uh, authority. Um, even though, I th from my understanding of the Heroes program, it's, it's not it's not so much a, a recognition of your competency, but a recognition for your contribution. Um, and so, it's more about how much you're contributing to the community at large. So, for me, it would be you know, okay, writing lots of blog posts, doing a lot of talks at conferences. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that I know more than somebody else who are just you know building their own company inside the company. Um, so, as far as I understand, it's not a program that recognizes. Uh, competencies per se, but it, but I'm glad that it gives that impression that uh, <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a recognition of uh, competency. Um, but I do think a lot of the people in the Heroes program are very are some of the most knowledgeable people uh, that I know. Certainly people like uh, Ben Cahill, um, uh, no, Vlad Ionescu, uh, and quite a lot of other people in that program you know, are people that you know, I look up to. Uh, and certainly, you know, Ben, ben, is, ben Cahill is probably the, you know, the, the what, the, one of the most uh, thoughtful person I know in terms of every, everything that comes out of his mouth just makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and that's, that's a great point because I was going to, that was going to lead into my next question is who do you look to as thought leaders, right? The heroes program is thought of thought leaders, but who do you look to as a thought leader in this, in this space, right? Like who, who, who's the first Twitter account that you go look at or the first blog post that you go read when something new comes out because you want to get insight onto that feature or that topic. Yeah, I mean Ben is probably one of the, uh, the, the one of the first person I look to um, because again he's very consider he's very um, very very thoughtful very uh, uh, very considered when he when he you know makes his his, uh, his opinions or thoughts uh, known um, and uh, and then there's also you know folks like um, uh, like Hightower who's not a heroes program but he's uh, one of the you know AWS uh, uh, principal solution architects I've known him for many years. Uh, and uh, yeah, he's also someone who has a lot of experience and knowledge working with you know, customers of all sizes. So I also take his opinions uh, uh, very highly as well. Um, so yeah, Ben Cahill, uh, um, I guess, um, um, let's see who else. Uh, uh, no, Vlad can be sometimes uh, quite, quite harsh, quite uh, 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 pointed in, his, uh, in, in, in what he says, but he's also you know, very... Uh, um, very clever, and also I think he's uh, you know, right you know, quite often. Um, Corey Queen's probably another one who is not part of the Heroes program, uh, but uh, also again he's uh, he's you know, if 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 you look past the the snarky uh, sort of uh, comments, uh, he's also you know, talks a lot of sense. And um, I think because of his snarkiness, uh, he's probably never going to be part of the 
the hero's program. <laughs> uh, but uh, but I think I do like a lot of things that he says, which uh, are again uh, rooted in a lot of experience of working with uh, customers. Um, there are also uh, a few other AWS uh, solution architects uh, who I work, who I know, and have worked with in the past, who whose opinions I, I value a lot because again, um, those guys work with a lot of customers, and um, and uh, no, I, I value those experiences that are are coming from the field. Um, um, but yeah, no, that's and that's a great point. Another thing I wanted to ask you is the name of your blog, the burning and your screen name, the Burning Monk. How did that name come to be? Yeah, so when when I was uh, growing up, uh, I was a big fan of uh, Rage Against the Machine, and and the debut album for Rage Against the Machine uh, is a picture of the Burning Monk, uh, who uh, well, who was this uh, Vietnamese monk who set himself on fire um, in protest, uh, and so he was he was he was quite a famous uh, uh, political figure. Um, but uh, I know my screen name actually comes from the, the the album, not the not the not the uh, not the monk himself. That is the best answer <laughs> I've ever heard. I'm never going to ask that question again. Nothing will be better than hearing somebody <laughs> go, yeah, it's just rage against the machine. <laughs> what are you working on over the now that we're in the new year? What are you working on and where can we find you? What conferences are you looking at attending um, when it comes to serverless? And um, wh what's on your roadmap for this year? Um, so this year, I, uh, I'm going to be speaking at the QCon London, and also I'm going to be speaking at the AWS Community Day in Turkey as well. Uh, and uh, right now, I'm still, you know, just I've just started. A, um, I've got this workshop uh, which I run every couple of months uh, called uh, Production Ready Serverless, and um, we just kick off the January cohort. Uh, and so I've got about 85 people or so in this workshop, and so I've just been busy. Uh, you know, updating the content because after reinvented so many new things, uh, I wanted to include. Uh, so the last uh, couple of weeks, I've just been the, updating the workshop, um, you know, including additional information about the whole new scaling behavior and a bunch of other things like that. Um, so, so yeah, that's what I've been working on recently, and I've just started uh, working with a client as well, doing a lot of uh, CDK work. Um, so yeah, I'm doing a mix of uh, you know things that you, that you do as a consultant, um, and uh, gonna be well now that uh, uh, I think 2024 I'm gonna be doing more traveling, and so hopefully we'll be speaking at more conferences uh, this year. That's awesome. I'm looking. I'm lo really looking forward to KubeCon EU. I'm gonna be going to both KubeCons because one's actually North America is actually here in Salt Lake City, and it's like an hour from me. So I'm, it'll be nice to go to KubeCon and be able to sleep in my own bed. Um, yeah, it, it's, I've had a great time talking with you and kind of just picking your brain a little bit. Um, when it comes to balancing that time between consulting, teaching the production ready serverless class that we'll link to in the description, blogging, and um, just your day-to-day -day stuff, how do you find downtime and what do you do to keep that balance? Um, I mean, actually, not having a full-time job uh, is is already you know, giving you a lot of uh, free time, um, and also the consulting work is uh, is not something that's uh, all the time. Um, and as a consultant, I think one of the nice things about that is you can choose the project. And honestly, I think the last maybe twelve, eighteen months has been pretty quiet anyway. I think uh, there's uh, been the same thing I've observed from other agencies and other independent consultants that uh, you no, know, there's no, just not a huge amount of work going around. And so it's not been that busy uh, from the consulting side of things. Uh, so I've been able to spend more time on the some of the teaching and also writing as well. Um, and one of the things that uh, I do a lot is just you know one of, okay, there's this one thing I want to try out, and so I just uh, build a small system 
again, it's again, it's back to about the, you know, build, you know, building to, uh, to learn. Uh, so I do a lot of, uh, so proof of concept type of things and just uh, try things out and build it for myself. Um, and, and yeah, and then I, when, when the, so I learn something interesting, I, I write about it, <laughs> I blog it, I share that with other people. In terms of downtime, I you know I got my Xbox and I've got the Game Pass. So it's been a, yeah, spending a lot of time with my uh, Xbox when I've got the downtime as well. What's your favorite game on the Xbox? Oh, Elden Ring has been the, my favorite the last year or so. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's 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 truly um, remarkable. It's very very different from other games that you've you know I've, I've played. Interesting, uh, but it's just gorgeous. It's beautiful and uh, also brutally difficult sometimes. Uh, <laughs> That's what I've heard is, especially with Elden Ring, that it's a very in-depth game and it takes a lot of time to get up to speed, but it can be brutally hard. It can be. Um, and uh, But it's, it's also a beautiful, beautiful game. There's just so many things that, that uh, uh, that's, you know, when, you re- when you learn about how they design a lot of the things and, uh, uh, and, and how they sort of, you know, kind of come up with some of the concepts uh, and some of the game designs, uh, which is something that I actually, you know, I watch it and I watch a lot of videos about uh, you know, different game design theories and things like that. How you know it, it, it really makes you think and appreciate the, some of the details that goes into the game. Um, there's lots of secrets in the Elden Ring as well, which uh, the more you dive into the lore uh, or the way they do sort of anim- uh, um, so environmental storytelling, the more you kind of feel, oh, that's really really clever what they've done there. <laughs> that's that's a, that's amazing. And now I'm going to have to go check it out because I've been scared <laughs> to check it out because I, I usually stick to racing games. I, I just like to drive around cool cars and <laughs> have all that fun. And so now I'm going to have to check out Elden Ring and see how that can suck up all yeah, my time. Yeah, put aside about 100 hours or so and you really enjoy it. <laughs> Good to know. About it. Make a, don't, 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 don't pass judgment until I've played it for 100 hours. Yep. <laughs> Well, I've had a great time talking to you, Yen, and I really look forward to connecting with you more as we go on. But thank you for taking the time today to sit down with us on Cloud Control and talk about your career journey, um, your thoughts on serverless, and just kind of just giving you your state of the land, the the state of the land when it comes to serverless computing and AWS resources. Really appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This has been Cloud Control, a podcast all about the people behind creating, running, behind the scenes in your cloud environments presented by Spot by NetApp. You can join us by downloading our episodes, leaving reviews, leaving us a five-star or whatever number of star review that you think is appropriate. You can also join the NetApp community at netappdiscord.com where you can join thousands of NetApp customers, engineers, and just community members to come talk about all things NetApp and even about food and other events that are going on. You can also visit the NetApp developer portal at developer.netapp.com. And for our guest today, Yen Trey and the rest of the cloud industry, we will sign off and we'll catch you in the cloud. <laughs>